and you just said right. you just said follow the breath and I, and that's what i needed to hear you know okay so let's look at it from this perspective then what i uh have the intention of teaching is the teaching of the buddha dukkha dukkha naroda mm -hmm. and that we use uh, various skill development tools that some people think of as meditation. <laughs> but that the real teaching is the teaching of the Dhamma. And the Dhamma is suffering and no suffering. So where the philosophy that you're talking about is neither here nor there. It's neither skill development, nor is it actual the practice of the Dhamma of coming, of seeing suffering and coming out of it, of seeing these old past feelings that um, are inappropriate for the moment and being free from them. That's the real uh, teaching. Uh, but I understand that a lot of people who will uh, consider themselves into Buddhism wind up... Uh, doing a lot of um, philosophy, some of which, but not all of which, would be magical thinking. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But and some of which is just whether or not it's true, you're pointing to something that is non-conceptual anyway, so you're adding concepts to something that's non-conceptual and that's really what i've gotten out of all this is the moment is just purely non-conceptual that's that a really important point is, is that what we're talking about uh maybe the wrong word for it is experience because experience sounds, sounds like an event <clears throat> but what we're talking about is as you were saying is non-conceptual but we can only talk about the non-conceptual with concept. Right. And right. so if I've got a non-conceptual uh, understanding to convey to the student, I have to put it into concept that the student can understand this concept so that they can destruct the concept themselves back into the reality that is uh, difficult to put into conceptual language. But this has been known for long time. In fact, uh, uh, the Tao Te Ching starts off with that phrase. The Tao that can be said is not the Tao. <laughs> that long ago they understood how difficult it is to give uh, a, a, a direct transmission. That it, that it almost always has to be done indirectly through, through concepts. Now, uh, if the concepts are kept fairly simple, then they can stay fairly close to reality. But the more complicated the concepts get, the more often the airy-fairy philosophy that they can get. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I, and I, what, what's, I think the, one, of the, one of the main things is that there's always some hook of life after death. And, you know, when you, when you truly take the world in non-conceptually, moment by moment, it's, you can't explain to someone that you're, you, there's nothing to fear. 
because because they're they're in their samsara you know they they don't they 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 could never understand that they could never understand that without a, a hook of life after death they could never understand the relief without the life after death you know or or they they don't even they don't understand it but they 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 want the you know the fear of death is rattling their cage and and they don't understand they they want something that's going to give them a relief from that fear exactly. and the buddha said hey i've got a way i got a path you know i got a path to get rid of fear i got a path to get rid of what's rattling your cage but they they want a logical thing to grab onto you know Well, maybe it's not a lot. They want something to grab onto. Yeah. And it doesn't even have to be logical. Yes, right. Does the, the, but something that they can conceptualize easy, easily. This is not, not something that you can conceptualize. You can, there's no words, you know, for the moment, for non-conceptual experience. Uh, there's many different ways I think to work it out, but I think everyone mm-hmm. has to uh, to kind of to work it out to understand that every story about uh, life after death, every one of them has no basis in reality no evidence and that everything that we know about goes against that belief. Mm -hmm. And you can also see that um, the desire for um, perpetual life of not dying uh, is not quite as old as the hills, but it's certainly older than the pyramids. Mm-hmm. And that um, it it really has to do. Gosh, I'm not sure if we can get too deep into this. It has a lot to do with capitalism. Mm-hmm. That capitalism is that a system to whereby um, the worker does not get the benefit of his labor. And our whole society is set up like that. At every job you take, uh, the the employer uh, makes a some kind of cost benefit analysis that paying you uh, not what you're worth, but paying you less than what you're worth means that the rest of what uh, the addition after what you're paid is his. Do you understand what I'm getting at? Well, say the last part again. I'm sorry, my son. Okay. The um, that, no, that I think the, I know what you're getting at. Right. That capitalism is the system whereby the worker does not get the benefit of his labor. Not all of it. He's only paid part of what he, he is left given. Now, 
let's imagine that the uh, the distinction would be a different way would be a cooperative. And the cooperative can have 10 or 100 people in it, but it's a democratic cooperative and that the people who work in that cooperative are the ones who make the decisions and all the values and benefits stay within that cooperative as opposed to going to a boss. Okay, so now that you have the concept of a boss getting the value of someone else's labor, either in part or in whole, you begin to understand that the reason that some people can do that is because they have the ability to bully others. It will be the bully who gets that started. That he'll take things that don't belong to him and robbing uh, uh, the other people of the benefit of their labor. If he can then hire, uh, if he gets enough of that going, he can then hire other thugs to start enforcing what he's doing. If you continue that along, you're going to have a pharaoh or a warlord or something going. So that's the whole point of it. When someone gets to the point that they feel all-powerful now and that the only thing that they cannot defeat is their own old age, sickness, and death, where they've got everything else wired because of uh, the force of the history or the force of ownership and the force of control. Um, I got many examples of this from the really, really old days, including the, um, there, there, you still haven't dug up the entire mountain yet. But there's a mountain in China that's not a mountain at all. It's a funeral pile. And that they've got thousands and thousands of terra, uh, terracotta soldiers in there. You've probably heard about this. Including yeah. rivers of mercury. Well, the whole thing of it uh, about this this king was that he actually poisoned himself looking for the elixir of life, just like Ponce de Leon is looking for the fountain of youth, mm-hmm. or just like the pharaoh. And so the pharaohs were the ones, and this is also uh, big in the Roman system, to where the the king becomes a god. Well, the only quality of a god is not that they are all-powerful because a king can do that. It's that they are immortal. And so the godification of a king is because the king uh, can get everything he wants except for getting rid of old age, sickness, and death. See where that goes to. So now they say, okay, let's do something to solve that problem too. And so you wind up with mummifications and all kinds of other things, to, uh, uh, including the pyramids. But at that time, it was still for the king. It was only for the guy who was able to do everything else, basically to force people to build a pyramid and to uh, pay the priest off for doing the mummification and all the rituals associated with it. So they began to make the rules, and therefore they began to get power. And so the priesthood comes in. So the first thing, it starts with a bully who would be king, who then becomes all-powerful, and he wants even more powerful. He wants power over his own life and death. And now he's got charlatans called priests who come in to abide him with his fears and desires. 
So now you've got a religion going, but it's still a religion around the king and the power of the king. You can see how all of this is still left as residue in Christianity. Yeah. So, but then something happened. The something that happened, it looks like, happened around 800 B.C., and it happened in India. And that was uh, the conflict between the, uh, the um, insurgents who came possibly uh, long before that. This was, uh, let us say, an old war uh, in India that had gotten started when uh, the Mesopotamian Empire folded and the Aryans invaded India. And so this was the clan still of, uh, of the Buddha, the warrior class. And before they came in, the Brahmins had already owned all the land. How did they get the land? By uh, doing funeral rites. You give me your brother's land, and I'll bury your brother, or I'll cremate your brother for you. You know, that was the kind of way. And so it, it still worked like that in Varanasi, as the mm. river got you. That it took, sometimes people will have to give up vast, vast areas of land to the Brahmins to get them to do this. Wow. Um, so uh, back to that time, then the the Brahmins who said, "Well, we deserve this. We are the prince. Uh, we are the priests. We're the ones in charge of the religion." In fact, what they're saying is that we are the gatekeeper to the beyond. We've got it. If you want a good birth, you, a rebirth, you've got to do it our way. And so that yeah. was the basis of it. Now, the next point was, is that, well, we are the Brahmin. How did we get Brahmin? Why are you not a Brahmin? Well, we are Brahmin because we were good in the past. And you're, you're not Brahmin, which means that you were not good in the past. And now we bring in the law of karma. The law of perpetual karma. And that's where it got started. But along with that, drug in something new that had not happened before. And that is, is that they're saying that, oh, it's not just that the king can be reborn. It's that everybody already is reborn. And therefore, you have a chance. So it turns out then that about the time that Alexander the Great visits India and brings back, because he already kind of owned Egypt already, with the Ptolemies, you know, that it was in the age of the Ptolemies that something kind of surprising happened in Egypt. The number of mummies exploded. Now, anybody who's got money can hire a priest to get himself mummified and build his own kind of uh, pyramid or whatever like that, and it became a popular thing. And so this whole business of life after death um, uh, is very, very deeply buried into the psyche of each one of us, the human. It is, in fact, our deepest, deepest part, which we could call the self-preservation instinct. And yeah. that the method of operation with this instinct is fear, that we become afraid when we are in danger. And like I've said many times, the problem now is with humans is there's too many false positives. Yeah, yeah. 
Too many false positives. We're out there being afraid when there's not no time to be afraid. So back at that business about Sunday evening, and I'm full of fear and anxiety and all of that and don't know why. The answer is, it's because it's an old habit. Ain't that funny about how old habits even know what time of the week it is? <laughs> yeah, I I remember reading, uh, I, I read this book called uh, The Pillars of the Earth. Um, it's about, it's, it's, it's well-researched historical fiction, but it's about uh, during the Middle Ages when they're building cathedrals, and uh, there are these tyrant overlords who are, you know, raping and pillaging this town um, where they're building this cathedral, and um, the it's essentially the book is the long arc of how the abbot, the book essentially ends with this king um, kneeling before this abbot, you know, mm-hmm. how this abbot, how this, you know, how the meek inherit the earth, you know, this abbot convinced him that, you know, that, you know, his mortal soul hung in the balance and, and that's the only thing that got through to him. He didn't care about anything else, you know. <laughs> Um, Isn't that interesting, though? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, You're just kind of repeating the Middle Middle Ages version of what happened with the first Pharaoh. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, the priests come in and take control because they're the ones who guard the door to the afterlife. Right, yeah. I I mean, when there's no other, you know, everybody's going to look for their their way to uh to get on top you know <laughs> and uh <laughs> there there is a building at what's going move that is uh called the spiritual theater and in this building is a lot of art some of the pieces of art <clears throat> are are big like uh maybe a 10 by 10 foot and others are of various sizes and one of them up on the second floor is um, an image. Basically, the whole image is the image of uh, a kind of an ornate staircase, the kind of staircase you would find in the, in the Capitol building, in the rotunda, or maybe in a fine hotel or something like that. So this is the staircase. And that um, at the top of the staircase, the, the staircase kind of... Uh, uh, gets goes off into the cloud after about 10 or 15 or 20 steps up to the it's a it's just kind of clouds take over and you don't quite know where the staircase leads. But standing at the bottom of the staircase in this drawing is the the uh the pictorial representation of a mullah, a priest, a preacher, uh, a Buddhist monk, and something or another, and they're all there locked in arms, standing guard in front. (laughs) Oh, that's great. Of this ladder, or of this staircase. Uh Yeah, so they 
And so this picture that I'm talking about is that is the pictorial representation that the priesthood becomes the guard to the afterlife. Yeah. And your example of that of, of that is just, I mean, it's very common in the Middle Ages at Yao that people could be brought to heal by some priest saying, I'm going to excommunicate you or something. Yeah. Yeah. So that shows the power of that kind of fear. But all of it is based upon magical thinking. Mm -hmm. Because uh, the magical thinking is, oh, I am afraid to and afraid of death. And, and I, and I, I don't, I don't have too much more time left, but in that same thing, another thing I've been thinking about is, is talking about actions having mixed results mm-hmm. and even, yes. and I was thinking about the Buddha himself and Jesus and how even their limited actions to try to spread this truth were, <laughs> I mean, Christianity probably more than Buddhism, but they, they did have mixed results. I mean, you know, uh, I mean, anything, you know, anything has, because there's, there's no, you know, there's, there's no value inherent in the world. And so, and so there's no good and bad. I mean, there's, you, you, if I walk out in the, in, in my backyard, I might step on and kill five ants, you know, what, what's the perspective of good and bad? It's only from a human being's perspective. If I got shot, you know, um, my mom would think it was the worst thing that ever happened, but a giraffe wouldn't care, you know? So, so what I'm trying to say is that, that, that even saying karma has good and bad results, good and bad are words that, you know, we came up with to describe and so, and so it's a wave. It's like a, you know, it's like a, a wave that goes back and forth and you, you, you know, you can't, you have no control over it. You throw a rock in a pond and you, you can't, you don't control the ripples, you know, it just. Precisely. You know, um, it's, there's another wrinkle or complication in that. And that is they talk about good action, giving good results. And bad action giving bad results. Yeah. Well, here's an example of an action. Let's go buy some stock. Maybe a hundred or maybe a thousand shares, but we're buying stock. A significant first purchase for most people that I know. That's a heavy action, right? Is it a good action or is it a bad action? Mm -hmm. The answer is, well, if, if the stock goes up and I sell it, then I've made a profit. It's a good action to buy the stock. But if the stock goes down and I sell it, then I have lost money. So the original purchase was a good or a bad action, depending upon the result. Mm-hmm. And that's the part that a lot of people don't understand. The results of the action determine the value of the action, not the action itself. Yeah, right. Yeah, it's, it's, every time I think of it, I can't think of, you know, a good, 
a good action where I couldn't find some mixed or bad result. You know, I, well, I this uh, it's is hard common to, knowledge in, in yeah. the West. It is well known. We even have phrases for it and depending upon like um, one is uh, collateral damage, which is the army's way of saying that you can't kill just what you want to kill. You're going to kill something else. And maybe some of your guys are going to get killed in the process. There's always collateral damage. Yeah. But a more benign way of talking about it would be um, unintended consequences. Yeah. But this is, both of those points have to do with the concept of control, thinking that the action that they're performing is a good action. In other words, why would the army bomb that place? They think that it would be good for them to bomb that place. Right. But then they have to deal with the collateral damage that was done, and now they recognize maybe it wasn't such a good idea to bomb that place after all. <laughs> but even the bombing of the place to protect our country, you know, it, it's only from the view of our country that America is good, or it's only, you know. Uh, well, all so... the folks are waking up to that right now, aren't they? <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, they get the folks of America. You see, in the 1950s, it was very, very strong. It, it's got started strong after World War II because uh, uh, the Americans had won the war while uh, and had a big industrial machine left while Europe was completely destroyed. Uh-huh. And so uh, the braggadocio of the Westerners, uh, of the Americans, immediately ran into uh, uh, communism and the new competition. And so all of this stuff about adding God into the Pledge of Allegiance, you know the Pledge of Allegiance that the United States uh, did in the 1930s, I think they still do it in school, was borrowed from the, Ger- the Nazi Germany. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the... <laughs> United Hitler yeah. caused of taking over the world, you know. This is the whole point about nationalism and whatnot. Um, so, um, there was this big, big push in the United States of how wonderful and how marvelous the U.S. is. And by doing the GI Bill and the, some of the housing that they were doing with the government, there was reason to believe that. And when Eisenhower was in office, the tax rate for the wealthy was at about 90%. Yeah. And so there was a huge, huge burst of the middle class in the 1950s. And then all then things kind of went downhill. I think that it started going downhill with JFK assassination, but it really hit not bottom quite yet. We're not, I don't even think we're at the bottom yet, but we certainly did hit a major skid mark at, uh, uh, with Nixon. And it seems like now that uh, after Eisenhower has been in office that every Republican that is in office is trying their best to take the very best out of America and give it to the wealthy so that the wealthy of the world or the wealthy of America now represents what America is. They own all the business and everybody else is a peon. Right. I have read recently that 67 people 
just 67 people own half the wealth of the world. Yeah. It only took 67. And yet I know (laughs) know this all too well. Great people that are on the other side of that half. So we, we, uh, we, we donated quite a bit of money to Bernie Sanders and, you know, we, we, you know, we, we, we see that very clearly, you know, um, but, and, and politically it's, it's like him. It's like, it's what, what were his actions? What I, I, where I was thinking, and that, that's, that's what really broke it down for me is, is that I was really involved in that campaign and, um, donated and volunteered and all this and then it just um got demolished by this corruption i mean it got demolished by capitalism so you know essentially you know the 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 campaign where the people with the money the campaign that the people with money liked was the one who prevailed and so and so, well, uh, in some ways, though, you have to keep saying so far so good because we haven't seen what um, Biden is actually going to do because he's yeah. being, um, let us say, educated right now. Who, who knows? Who knows what he'll do? I, I, I don't know. I, I know that he came from credit card companies like that's that's where that's how he got into power. That's how he got to where he is, is that he was very, he was very involved in, in these credit card companies. So, well, yeah, let I, me ask you this. Do you know any poor people who were in any state legislatures or any federal no. big job? No. I mean, well, you know, Bernie Sanders was a socialist when he became a mayor. And, um, he's definitely one of the poorest senators. Um, but he's a, he's a complete outlier. I mean, he won, he won a mayoral election that he was never supposed to win, uh, as a socialist. And he somehow, you know, got to where he is, um, by calling himself a socialist. I, I, you know, it's, uh, there's no, there was nobody else like him particularly, but I mean, even he, He's a lot smarter, I feel like, than than his supporters. I mean, he has a he has a better philosophy of life because it doesn't seem well, like it's he's gotten to him. You know, he's let it got get to him. Like I see a lot of political candidates do. You know, that he understands the nature. Right. Of the, the politics world. didn't get to him, and neither did the loss. I I congratulate him on that. But you see, the last time he lost in 2016, there was a lot of bitterness around him losing if people didn't then want to support Hillary because they knew that she was as bad a capitalist as the Republicans would put up. Yeah. So he didn't bother to vote. And now look what, and, but, <laughs> and they can see it now. So you better believe that the uh, progressive and Bernie Sanders, uh, Bernie's supporters are going to be. Um, let us say, paying attention this time. They're yeah. not going to sulk off into the corner and, and lick their wounds because Bernie didn't get in. 
Yeah, and I is right um, now they're, I, they're I, I, in the basement schooling uh, Biden over what they want him to do when they put him into office. I haven't. Um, I haven't done that. I mean, I haven't. I haven't licked my wounds. I, it was definitely a learning experience, and I'm. It was definitely uh, a detach, uh, an insight, a detachment that there was made, and um, you know, the way that I look at myself and my actions now is much more about being in the moment um and also not taking my actions being sort of detached from my actions in a way that i i'm not i i can't know whether what i do is gonna have a good effect or a bad effect and so that's yeah, right. Okay. Now you're beginning to understand the law of karma. Is when we yeah. we recognize, hey, when I take this, I, I don't know what the results of this is going to be. Yeah. We can sometimes we can get a pretty good idea if I don't go get my visa on time. I know what the results will be. And so sometimes we've got to go do stuff. But uh, in many cases, and especially the politics, who knows what's going to happen. And who knows, even if you, even if your perfect candidate came into power, like let's say Trump has come into power and, uh, you know, in four years and, and there's going to be a huge back. I just saw some numbers today and he's looks like, you know, Joe Biden is way on top of him on the national polls. But there's a huge backlash to Trump now. You know, I, my, I know some ardent trump supporters who don't really like him anymore you know and so so and it's just like with the civil rights movement you know it it it, it moved us forward but there was a backlash and then we move forward again and then there's a backlash and there's this wave that keeps keeps going exactly um, well that's and you, you're part of the wave Right, um, it's a dance, two steps forward yeah. and one step back. I, I've heard the song, you know, that's just how it is. And that most people um, have the idea ever onward. No, it's not ever, it's not going to be onward. It's, you're not going to keep climbing. It's not going to be that way. Uh-huh. That uh, if- There's too many people who want a little bit of their action. And so... <laughs> but if you, to be a good dancer... You can't really be, you know, you can't think of one part of the dance as good and one part of the dance is bad. Exactly. It's just a dance and you're having it and you're having a good time, you know. Now you're getting to the Dhamma, exactly. <laughs> if we're going to do this dance, why should we suffer when we can enjoy it instead? And if we can't enjoy the dance, then why do the dance? Yeah. Or maybe I've let's a, do a dance we can do. <laughs> <laughs> That's a, that might be a good place to end it. <laughs> All right. Well, I've enjoyed this conversation. We'll hey, I have too. We'll see you later, Eric. I know you got to go. Bye. Bye-bye. See you, Don Reto.